Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film High Noon from 1952 with my wonderful guest, Ashley Blanchett. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield, and today I have my wonderful guest, Ashley Blanchett. Hello, Ashley. How are you today? Hi, doing really good. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me again. Oh my gosh, of course. Um, So this time around, we watched High Noon from 1952. Ashley, what were your opening thoughts? How did you feel after watching this time? Well, I really didn't know what to expect. I've never seen this movie before. Um, I went into it knowing that it won a bunch of Oscars and that it was a big deal, but I didn't like know the plot or anything like that. Um, so this is going to be a fun little discourse that we have between the two of us because I really, I, I was watching it for the first time. Oh, I did not know that. I thought you had seen it before, but also that makes it this much better. Um, the reason I chose this movie was because when I was like first thinking about doing this podcast, this was one of those movies on the list. This was like, okay, excellent film change the game, feminist Western, like we're obviously going to need to talk about it. But then I just, it kept like not fitting with the seasons and it just wasn't the right time. Um, But I knew that I wanted you to watch it specifically because it's such an awesome feminist Western. Um, So yes, I want to get into all of that here. But first I will do a plot synopsis for the people at home who have not seen it. There will be spoilers in this plot synopsis. So if you do not want spoilers, go watch the movie first, then come back. The good news for you is that it's very short. It's an hour and 25 minutes, so you can go watch it. Like, that's probably about the length of what this podcast will be. You can go watch it and then come back. Um, Okay, so plot (laughs) synopsis for High Noon. Um, We're going to get into this more, but it's based on the experience of Carl Foreman. He had read a, a short story in a magazine called The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham. And um, he wanted to use that as an allegory for what was happening in Hollywood, like with uh, HUAC, with the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, it was like blacklisting friends of his. He was going to be next on like the blacklist. And so it was the way that he felt about people who named names. I think originally he wanted to do a totally different kind of Western, but then this presented itself to him and he just went with it. Um, okay, so this movie, Gary Cooper plays a guy named Will Kane who in the opening scene is getting married to a woman named Amy Fowler. Um, She's a Quaker, so they don't get married in a church. Well, that'll come into play later. Um, But they're married. They're going to leave today. And a new marshal is going to come into town to take over for him. Um, But three men who are very scary, we can see that they're scary because of the way the townspeople react to them show up. And they're waiting on a train. And apparently 
a guy named Frank Miller who used to kind of run this town. He's a bad guy who ran the town. He killed someone and uh, Will Cain put him in jail and he was supposed to be in jail for life. But for reasons that no one will ever find out, he was released from jail. Um, and he's going to come to town on the noon train and he's going to kill Gary Cooper. That's his whole plan. No. So, yep. Gary Cooper's like, okay, I don't want that to happen. Uh, but here's the thing. That guy was bad. This is clearly wrong. Uh, I'm going to get a posse together of like deputies. I'm going to deputize people and we're going to stand up to these bad guys and they're going to go away. <laughs> so the movie takes place in real time. Like when the movie starts, it is the time that we start at as viewers. It's like 1045 um, AM when it starts. And we just watch him in real time, try to figure out who will get behind him. And so he goes from place to place to try to convince people to have his back. And nobody has his back. Nobody will stand with him. No one will be deputized. Even though they know it's the right thing to do, they all kind of come up with excuses for why they don't want to do it. And it's mainly because they're scared. They don't want to risk what they already have. It wouldn't benefit them monetarily. For all these various reasons, they will not stand with him. And Grace Kelly's reason that she won't stand with him is that she's a Quaker. It's against her religion. She even has a whole backstory. Her brother and father died in a gunfight when they were supporting like a good cause. Which seems fair. Hers is like the only kind of rational one, I think. Um, <laughs> so no one will stand with him except for one guy was going to stand with him. But then when he found out no one else was standing with him, he's like, okay, never mind. I'm sorry. Goodbye. So Gary Cooper is all alone to face these gunmen. And the gunmen show up to town and Gary Cooper's by himself. But Grace Kelly hears some shots when she's on the train and she's like, nope, I can't leave him. I got to go support him and help him out. So Gary Cooper has killed two of the men. Grace Kelly saves his life, kills the third man. And then um, when the big bad guy, Frank Miller, comes in to like, you know, stop her, uh, she fights her way free of him, thereby giving Gary Cooper a shot to shoot him. Um, he doesn't win without her help, which is pretty cool. And um, they they embrace. He drops his, you know, sheriff star on the ground and leaves town uh, with his with his wife, knowing that one, he has kind of like saved the town from these people. And two, the thing that was special about the town is now lost because they couldn't stand up for what was right. Um, mm. Yeah, th what was going to happen was he was going to get killed and they were kind of like, that's OK. It won't affect us. Thanks for all your help over the years. Goodbye. Like they just didn't, they just didn't care. But what's also cool about this movie is that we have Katie Harada playing Helen Ramirez, who is the owner of the saloon. Um, and I just think she's such a badass in this movie. She was Gary Cooper's former love. Um, her and Grace Kelly get along <laughs> in a really cool scene together. Um, and I just love that she's like this awesome, intelligent businesswoman and kind of subverts the expectations of what a Western would be at the time. So like, we're going to get into all of that, but that's high noon. And she's Mexican. Oh, and she's Mexican. Oh my God, I forgot to share. She's she's Mexican. She speaks Spanish. Um, and what's interesting is like, you can tell how different people around the town are based on their interactions with her. And one of the reasons she ends up leaving town, she used to be Frank Miller's girlfriend, who's like the big bad guy. And one of the reasons she's leaving this town is not just because of Frank Miller. It is because of him, but also because she doesn't like the people of town are racist to her. And she says that, and then she leaves and you're like, wow, she voiced that. That's pretty cool yeah. in a movie from 1952. Totally. So yeah, she's, she's my favorite character. I loved her so much in this. Um, I think what this movie was famous for, 
at the time was how I mentioned it earlier. It subverts the typical tropes of the Western, but it's specifically known for its close-ups. It's like grit, grime, sweat. Um, it was purposely done in a documentary style. Um, the the filmmakers were really into this one documentary and they tried to shoot this film in that same way. And then it's also famous for a wide pan shot uh, of Gary Cooper by himself, completely isolated. So I feel like those are the really, uh, really iconic things about this movie. What did you feel was iconic about this movie, Ash? Oh, yeah. No, you're 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 nailing it. You're saying everything. Um, and I think I, I noticed all that all those things. Now for 1952, there was something about it. Maybe, maybe it was the documentary style, but there was something about it that felt like it was sort of experimental um, for its time. Um, Like the, there's sort of that, that Hitchcocky sort of creepy or or kind of spooky way that they um, constantly focused on the clock with the scary music and the clock ticking that kind of reminded me of like the future Hitchcock sort of shots that uh, you don't typically find in a Western. I feel like it's a very suspenseful Western. They really build with the anticipation and it's very simple because it's not like this is a Western where there's a ton of fighting, right? Our big shootout happens over the course of like five minutes or 10 minutes at the end of the film. And up until that, the anticipation is, will these people follow this man? And that's where we build from. And what you're mentioning that's so smart is I think the way that they build anticipation with this film is with the score, which is done by Dimitri Tiamkin. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, Sounds right. Sounds good. But he was so clever in how he did the score because it's like what you said. We see the clock ticking, but the sound underneath the clock ticking is not the clock. It's sometimes it's piano. Sometimes it's strings plucking. Sometimes it's like this unique I couldn't figure out what that instrument was but it was like a like it was like a frog (laughs) sounding instrument um so they have all these different instruments that they build tension with just by the steady like pressing beat of them um so I think that's really cool but then the other ways they build anticipation um so I mentioned the score but also they do it with um the progression of close-ups. They do it by showing us the empty chair that Frank Miller sat in when he was convicted of murdering people. And they had his voice at the one part that was like, I'm going to get you, Kane. Um, yeah, it's very so, Rosebud. Yes. Like it, this like zoom yeah, in. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they also don't show us Frank Miller's face. They build anticipation in all the ways that they can by kind of um, delaying gratification on certain things. Oh, and they show us the train tracks, the bear train tracks. They cut to the three men that are waiting for Frank Miller and showing them getting ready at various points. Um, so they'll show them, uh, you know, tying their shoes. And then eventually a couple, like 10 minutes later, they'll show them getting their bullets ready. So that kind of puts us back in reminding us who we're waiting for and what we're waiting for. It's just such a smart way of building things for a story that feels like a play. That's just so simple. Um, yeah, I loved mm. all that. I mentioned the subversion of Westerns. So some of the things I was noticing this time specifically is I feel like one of the, one of the big tropes in Westerns is like the white cis straight male hero saves everything and saves the day. Mm -hmm. And in this story, the two women are like the strong heroes. I mean, Grace Kelly literally saves his life. He um, talks about being scared. He's vulnerable. That doesn't happen in Westerns. Um, Mm. A cool detail I noticed in this was a lot of times in Westerns in the past, the good guy wears a white cowboy hat and the bad guy wears a black cowboy hat. And in this Western, Gary Cooper's wearing a black hat the whole time and the bad guy has a white hat. 
Um, oh, yes. Uh, the hero isn't like revered. People aren't listening to him. Oh, it's in real time, which isn't like a normal, a normal thing. So I think those are some of the things that like subvert the Western trope, which is probably why I liked it because I'm not someone that typically enjoys Westerns. Cause I usually feel like Westerns are like, I'm a big, strong white man. I am going to probably be a white supremacist. <laughs> and I'm just going to kill a bunch of people for probably not a good reason. And I'm tough. <laughs> And I'm going right. to sleep with sex workers and belittle them, but they're going to fall in love with me. Like, to me, that's what a Western is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is not that. So that's probably why I like it so much. I mean, I don't know if you like Westerns or not. Again, I'm not a big, I'm sorry, people at home. I'm just not a big Western person unless it's like a special kind of Western that's not totally a Western. Did you have anything that was like, you know speaking out to you about like what this what made this different than other westerns i want to talk more about the allegory of house of an american activities committee um american act you know what i'm saying activities committee it's house on american activities committee because i looked it up today because i was saying it wrong i was saying house of on american activities committee right. and i said that on this show and then i found out yeah today that it's house on american activities committee okay mm-hmm. you, you would think that there'd be an oven there you'd think there would be you really would. anyway anyway itty bitty titty committee um <laughs> i i think that it's it's such an interesting thing that in retaliation that they made a movie that is it's it's very subtle about it i don't think it's very i don't think it's very loud i just i'm just curious on your thoughts about how do they make that point in doing this movie so i listened to this amazing episode of fresh air um, where they interviewed an author. Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book about High Noon. And it was about how Carl Foreman, who wrote the screenplay for this, was blacklisted from Hollywood right after the making of this by HUAC um, because he wouldn't name names. <laughs> so HUAC, People at Home, House on American Activities Committee was this kind of bullshit committee uh, that was put together by Congress. <laughs> it's really stupid. Um, and it was basically like, okay, we think that there are communists in this country that are trying to like take over our entertainment and trying to like put propaganda in our movies to raise young communists. And we think that should be illegal, even though it's like free speech, whatever. And um, even though they had no proof either. So they ruined people's careers and lives, <laughs> literally took away their passports, um, literally put them in jail <laughs> for being communists. Um, which we know now is like ridiculous. And it really did ruin people's lives and careers. A lot of people had to flee. They couldn't live in this country anymore. Um, they couldn't make movies anymore, which would have been like their livelihood. Um, they were blacklisted. So there first there was the Hollywood 10. This all happens in 1947. And then a couple of years later, um, and oh, and I should mention in the 40s, like there were some stars were pro um this happening, like pro HUAC. And one of those people was Gary Cooper ironically enough whoa yes um like it was gary it was all conservative people it was like gary cooper and robert taylor and clark gable like it's, it was progressive backlash basically the progressive stuff of the 40s right. they were like, no conservatives now right right america first exactly so um 1947 all this happens first those 10 writers including dalton trumbo who is famous for this uh, are blacklisted and then again, in the early 50s, it heats up again. But this time it's like for serious. So that time it was serious, but not everybody was kind of brought in. This time around, it's like, if you don't name names, you are blacklisted, period. You do not get to work in Hollywood. We take away your passport. You're done. 
Um, so, <laughs> uh, that's the, the author of this, Carl Foreman, um, he was writing this screenplay, uh, and he was working with Stanley Kramer, who was the producer of this. And when he gets called up to go into Congress, he kind of feels like everybody turns their back on him. Um, including Stanley Kramer, Stanley Kramer works to dissolve their partnership. Um, he is removed from the production company after this film. He loses his production credit on this film because of um, his testifying. Uh, and Gary Cooper, <laughs> I think it's confusing because Gary Cooper wants to do this film, but also he wants to do this film because not a lot of great parts are being offered to him. He's in his 50s. He is not as sharp as he once used to be. You know, he's still handsome, but he's not as young as he once was. So it's he does back Carl Foreman once Carl Foreman is like look I did used to be a communist but like I left the communist party and I'm not like you know trying to harm anybody um because I'm explaining this really badly basically being a communist in the late 30s and early 40s was like in the way we were it was just like a progressive ideal <laughs> people were not like Russian and they were not trying to like fascistly be communist <laughs> like they were just like right. hey, you should share shit <laughs> like that was like <laughs> what being a communist was in the 30s and 40s <laughs> um so carl had in fact like left the communist party several years before um he had taken like the loyalty oath to the united states that people had to take back then uh but he did all that and uh it still wasn't enough but gary cooper did support him in this fact so even though gary cooper had previously been like no anti-commie um, he did support him in this. So you're like, okay, but it also was a little bit selfish too, because he wants to be in this really good movie that he knows will boost his career. This movie stands for all those things. Like in the film, Hadleyville, the name of the town is another name for Hollywood. Like they sound similar, right? So oh. yeah. So like maybe the saloon people are like the fellow writers. Uh, and then he goes to mm. another place and maybe that's like, the former marshal played by Lon Chaney Jr., a.k.a. the Wolfman in all of those universal <laughs> pictures. He goes to him thinking that man will have his back. Maybe that's Stanley Kramer. This guy is like, yeah, it's wrong. I know it's wrong, but I don't have your back. He goes from person to person. They all give him different reasons about why they don't have his back. But to me, that stands in for different people in Hollywood. That stands in for like producers or even even they, they blame politicians in this. Why is Frank Miller free? The politicians let him go. So why is Huac here entering Hollywood and harming us? The politicians are allowing it. So it's like, I think everybody stands for someone in Hollywood at the time um, or someone in the that sphere at the time. Um, and I don't know exactly who everybody would be, but it's very clear. Like nobody, mm -hmm. nobody has his back. And in the end, nobody did. I mean, he moved to Britain, couldn't come back to the States really, didn't have passport. Um, he ends up writing Bridge on the River Kwai and doesn't get credit for it, wins an Oscar for it. But the guy that accepts it is a guy, the French guy that wrote the book that doesn't even speak English. <laughs> like, Whoa. Yeah. Um, I should say co-wrote, by the way. He co-wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. But still, like this testifying to Congress and just saying, like, I plead the fifth when they ask you about if you're going to, you know, name names. That ruins his life. That ruins his career. Um, wow and this wow. film was the last like thing that he made with his name and I think it's interesting that a lot of the premise is why don't you just give in why don't you just leave why do you feel like it's important to fight I think that's interesting in terms of when you when you think about it in terms of him pleading the fifth and in, in terms of him being like I'm gonna do what's right I'm not gonna you know 
succumb. He was frustrated because he's like, I don't even feel strongly about the Communist Party. This is just wrong. Like what is happening is wrong. And I want to take a stand against what's wrong. (laughs) So it's like so interesting to me that it wasn't even his passion that he was like losing everything over, you know? Totally. Well, that just goes to show what a witch hunt it really is. I mean, there's nothing that you're really actually like what you're accusing this person of is like not even a a thing that exists. And I think um, what's interesting about Grace Kelly, as opposed to the other characters who abandon him, and I don't think Katie Harada abandons him because I think there's really no other choice for her because she is in danger as well. Um, Because she dated Frank Miller, because people keep telling her, you know what Frank's like, if he's around, you'll be attacked too. So to me, she's doing what she has to do to survive and she's still honorable. But Grace Kelly's character, I think he's not clear. He can't explain to her why he has to stay. Because I think from her perspective, she's like, you're just trying to be a macho hero. This is stupid. This is dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think once she understands and once she sees that like his life is at stake for real and she can't, she chooses for herself, like I can't bear to lose him like that. To me, she's the only character that chooses to leave not understanding all of the facts not really because he can't explain it to her very well no he doesn't explain it very well I mean a little bit in the very beginning but I could have used a little bit more of an explanation of why he isn't just being like I'm gonna get out of town as fast as I can and he does make the point of like they would follow us which is a very good point (laughs) yeah okay Uh, yeah yeah I was like I get that point um but yeah, Grace Kelly, because of her backstory, we understand why she's so opposed. How cool is it that she has a backstory, that she's not just like a damsel in distress? That's true. That's very true. And speaking of women, I would love to... Okay, so I watched this movie with my dad today. And my dad and I were kind of like, we love the women parts. But why do you think that they wrote in in 1952 this particular part? I mean, how does that relate to the allegory? I... Um, Harada's part, this 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 businesswoman who's Mexican, who's escaping. Um, like I I don't really I I kind of wondered why they wrote this part into the movie, like what they were going for. Okay, so I was thinking about something similar, but in my brain it was like it's because it subverts expectations. So I think in a Western, her character would be the character where she's either like the madam of a brothel or she's a prostitute, a sex worker, right? And so in this, it's like, no, we subvert that. Like she is a widow. Um, She has sex with, you know, these men, probably she's in romantic relationships with them. We're assuming she has sex, but we're rooting for her. That doesn't happen. She owns her own business. Um, it's, It's like all of these ways that subvert the genre. So I almost wonder if that was part of it. If like, maybe the HUAC connection is like, this is what you expect. This is what we're told. We're told that the government always makes the correct choices and maybe they don't maybe maybe sometimes they make mistakes really big mistakes so this is almost like we're making a western but maybe a western is this actually maybe it could also be this so to me she was just like something that was subverted like it takes what our expectations would be and it puts them on its head because that there's not a character like this in the 1950s anywhere else yeah yeah and i really appreciate the fact that they're making this minority Mexican woman sort of like the most powerful, the most like clear on morally what's right and what's wrong. Before Grace Kelly gets there, she understands Gary Cooper way better than Grace Kelly does. 
I mean, she's, she's very much like moral compass in a lot of ways. And um, I thought that was really cool that they gave that character to a Mexican woman in 1952. I know her first movie was a year or two before this, and she had to learn her lines phonetically for that film. I wonder what her life was like, just like coming to Hollywood and suddenly being in Hollywood movies, not really speaking English. Like, what are the odds that that happens to you? I think she was discovered by John Wayne. And I think she ended up getting parts. So Dolores Del Rio ends up getting blacklisted and she's like a big star in the thirties and forties. And I feel like Katie Harada ends up getting a lot of the parts that were supposed to go to her, but then also a lot of the parts she gets like kind of suck. Of course they do. I'm the, you know, Native American villain in a Charlton Heston film next. Like she gets nominated for an Oscar for another film after this broken Lance in 1954. Um, but it seems as I was looking at a lot of the movies, I was like, none of these seem like what she's probably capable of. Like, I think what she showcases in this film, she's so good. Her acting is so good. It is. I just, you, you gravitate towards her. You trust her. Um, and you're right. How cool is it that in 1952, like McCarthy era America, we have a strong Mexican lead who's a woman. Like that's. It's just cool. I, I wrote down cool. a lot of her exchanges because they were my favorites. Um, I feel like part of part of the reason we build Gary Cooper up is based on her. We're kind of like, if a woman like that could love him, right. and if a woman like Grace Kelly could love him, then obviously he must be something special. But in his right. interactions with her, I was noticing like, so when she's talking to Lloyd Bridges, whose character is like the young marshal who won't stand beside... Um, Gary Cooper because Gary Cooper won't give him a leg up to get a promotion. He's like, well, if you're not going to help me get promoted, I'm not going to help you. And you're like, oh, you're the worst. So <laughs> he's dating Katie Harada now. Once she sees him behave like this, she's like, ew, gross. No, I don't really want you anymore. Plus I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so she says to him, she's like, when are you going to grow up? And he says, I'm getting tired of that kind of talk. And she says, then grow up. And you're like, yes. (laughs) And then they have an exchange where she's like, I can take care of myself. And he's like, I won't be back. And she's like, good. Okay. So right. They have these exchanges where he's like, you can't like live without me. But then when she's talking to Gary Cooper, Gary Cooper, she says to him, um, he's like, Frank Miller's coming back. You know, I wanted to warn you because I respect you. And she's just like, I'm not afraid of him. And he says, I know you're not afraid, but you know how he is. And she says, I know how he is. So it's like a totally different exchange. He's not trying to control her. And then they speak in Spanish to each other. Like she says, it's been a year since I've seen you. And he says, I know. So it's like, he's willing to be more than just like, you have to learn my language and do things for me. It's like, he's vulnerable. He is open to learning new things. I don't know. I, I, it tells a lot about his character, those exchanges. Totally, totally. And that, oh, my favorite line of hers that she says to Lloyd Bridges, I wrote down. She says, you're a good looking boy. You have big, broad shoulders, but he is a man. It takes more than big, broad shoulders to be a man, Harvey. And you have a long way to go. And I was like, yeah, those are good lines. Yeah. And then she was like, I don't want anybody to put his hands on me unless I say so. And I was like, yes. And then she, and then she smacks him. She smacks him hard. And then he leaves. Just goes away. It's amazing to watch. I wish I knew more about Katie Harada. I wanted to look it up, but I got really into looking up the Hueck stuff. And then I couldn't even explain it well, because it's so complicated. It's so confusing. 
I have to say, I'm really glad that Grace Kelly redeems herself in the end of this movie because the whole time she is just such a basic bitch and she's being so annoying and she seems so privileged and I don't know, it just seems like she just doesn't get it. And so it's really nice that she kills someone at the end. Like that, I feel like (laughs) she's like vindicated, you know, at the end for being able to like be the one that like takes the gun and and shoot somebody i just felt like that was her trauma though because like once you know her backstory because before you know her backstory you're like you're a little bit like okay grace i get that you're a quaker but like please can you just get on board faster be on board with gary cooper it'll take an hour come on well we can do this together but i think once you learn her backstory it seems like she hasn't been a quaker that long like maybe she's only been a quaker for like three years (laughs) and it's because like her brother and her dad died she watched them die in a shootout her brother was 19 like i think for her maybe it's a trauma thing like a trauma response almost i'm trying to figure out what i would do if on my wedding day my husband of one hour turned to me and was like hey Instead of driving out of here and going on our honeymoon, I'm just going to stay here real quick and just try to kill four people by myself. And you should stay. I feel like part of me would be like, "Eh, don't you want me to go? And good luck. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Or maybe would I be like, would I be like, you know, all right, I'll help you. Get me a gun. Like, what does he expect her to do? This is a good point. He says, stay in the hotel. Yes, he does. Because when he sees her in the hotel, he's like, you changed your mind. And she's like, I thought you changed yours. And you go, oh, no. I feel like I would have difficulty with that as an actor to try to like wrap my mind around like what the actual conflict is dramaturgically of like somebody who actually is your new husband being like, can you just chill here while I just go get murdered real quick. Like, I just feel like I, w- I don't think I'd behave in any of the ways that Grace Kelly behaved. But she has to behave that way because she has to, like, you know, come through in the end. Yeah. And it makes them stronger, her coming through for him. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Is that nobody would come through. So she kind of has to in the end. And she comes through in the best possible way. Like, she doesn't just come through. She, like, is the reason he's still alive in the end. Yeah, she kills people for him. And he could not have done it without her. I do feel like Katie Harado helped her on her journey. I do feel that oh, way. Oh, yeah. Um, it, that's so cool, too, that we have, like, a relationship between women that's not, like, catty. It's kind of like, yeah, I used to date that guy, but, like, I'm a cool person. Let's talk about this. Like, what are you afraid of and why? And this is what I would do in that situation. I just loved that. Yes. And may I point out in the most like pleasant, pleasant of manners um, as a person of color, this is this is the trope, though, that I always look out for, which is a woman of color um, isn't really part of the uh, like the main drama, but helps the white people on their way to like getting together. And so remains on the periphery of people that we care about um but it's almost like the um it's called the magical negro 
And it's like a trope, you know, in a lot of like movies and, and theatrical conventions where like there is just this like like this like mammy character that like helps the main people on their way. But like you're not ever supposed to like worry about like where they're going or what they're doing or what their conflict is. And, you know, that that's what happens with secondary characters no matter what. But it's I mean, this is a, in 1952, right? So, like, we're just glad that they actually used a person and called her Mexican and she was good. Like, that's just, that's good for the time period in itself. But it, but I just want to point it out that, like, this falls in line to that, that sort of trope that still exists today, um, where we have the, like, the best, the best friend or, or the, you know, the, the side character person who we're not really following, who is there to sort of, magically support the the grace kelly's of the world to continue on when like to be fair with you like the person that's more interesting to me is her my literal thought as i was taking notes was like i want to watch her movie after this like i want to see right. just about her character where she goes to a new town and like sets up shop right. and like right. i want to learn more about her because she's the most interesting character in the whole thing they made her incredibly compelling but yet we're supposed to be focused on the grace kelly's of the world and i think that that is just an interesting thing to note that like we have this like basic like yes very pretty but like I don't know like perfectly quaffed like rich looking like she doesn't belong in this town sort of like girl who's so privileged that she doesn't even quite understand the scenario and then you have this like gritty like you know more earthy you know Mexican woman who's able to be like this is a man who thinks with his heart like this, she's able to like <laughs> You know, like tell this white woman, like, you don't understand this man the way that I do in my earthy, magical way. And I will show you how, you know, anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. This film is subverting so much, right? Like it's subverting so much of a Western genre. But then at the same time, it like can't help itself with certain things that have been storytelling tropes forever. So I'm so glad you pointed that out. Cause that's still like a, a trope that was not subverted. I mean, it's 1952, right? Like it, it's not like he's going to go off with this woman or like, we're going to actually follow her story. And it, I think it's enough that she is in 1952, such a compelling, awesome character. And she's not white, you know, that yeah. that's, that's, that's a huge leap forward for 1952. Um, so yeah. I'll say that. And they show racism in the film. Like they show the one like white guy that's buying her store is like, when you move here, my wife thought, and then he like stops himself and he's up because he was about to say something racist. He stops himself and she, you can see, she's just kind of like, oh, fine. Like, whatever. I don't care. But as she's leaving, she's like, I hate this town. I've always hated this town. She's like, I don't like the way I was treated here. And you get the sense that it's because she was treated in a racist way. So I think even mm. the fact that they like called that out in 1952. Yeah. You're Amen. Like, okay. So there's awareness somewhere in this yes. sphere. And we're on her side. We're not on that white dude side. That's true. Pretty amazing. I want more for Katie Harado, but I don't know. It's. 1952 so we get gary cooper <laughs> also i should say like grace kelly this is like one of her first on-screen roles this is 1952 she's new to movies she's very young i would say like a modern lens thing is maybe she's a little too young for gary cooper who's in his 50s yes i i that was one of the first things i noticed i was like oh my gosh what is this child bride doing with this 50 year old man it's just like accepted i feel like when you watch this movie 
1952. You're not thinking to yourself, like, why is she, why is this 50 year old man marrying this young woman? I think it's just because you're building on Gary Cooper's persona too. Like going in, you're like, ah, Gary Cooper, big time movie star. Everything you've ever done is who you are right now. Therefore, it is acceptable for this young, very young 20 something to be falling in love with you, the 50 something. Right. Because you're a man. Yeah. You never age. You just, you age like a fine wine. But that's why I love this too, because it shows, it does show his cracks. Like he does look older in this film. He looks stooped and it's on purpose. It's to make him kind of not look as heroic as possible. Um, And then the cool thing about Gary Cooper in general is because he was a silent movie star, he has like the most expressive eyes, but you like, you see his wrinkles and his sweat and and he's like a little bit stooped or hunched at times. I did notice that like the sweat in this movie was like, yeah, unusual. I mean, it's supposed to be like New Mexico at noon, like on a hot day. I don't know what time of the year it is, but- they don't shy away. That is that is what would be happening. But I guess in most Hollywood movies at the time, they're kind of like, yes, but also they're beautiful, you know? Except Grace Kelly, who doesn't sweat in this at all and looks perfect, but she, I guess, can't help it. She's Grace Kelly. She probably doesn't sweat. Grace Kelly doesn't sweat. <laughs> she doesn't sweat. She doesn't sweat. Um, but yeah, there's dust and grime and you can like feel it. It's very visceral. Like uh, when Gary Cooper gets knocked to the ground by Lloyd Bridges and all that dust gets all over him, you're like, no. That's his best suit. He's never going to get it clean again. (laughs) I was thinking. Then the barber helps him and he does get clean. But it's you can feel that dust. I don't know. You could see it fly. You could see the grime. I, I like all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. I agree. To me, like one of the most compelling scenes in this is the church scene. Because to me, that's the turning point. That's when you're watching this film and Gary Cooper's going around to everybody and is like, hey, Frank Miller's coming. Will you be in my posse? And they're like, no. (laughs) He goes to the church because it's Sunday. And he's basically like, look, churchgoers, I'm so sorry to bother you. And they're like, you don't come to church enough. And he's like, yes, I know. I know. Whatever. Okay. So anyway, we've got a situation and here's what it is. And immediately people do stand up and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to help you. And um, then they decide to have a forum. So someone's like, no, don't rush. Don't rush into this. We only have an hour less than that, but don't, don't rush. Slow down. <laughs> and it's like, once they slow down and talk it out, every single person has a different point of view, um, which is cool. I love people having different points of view, but um, once they start talking about it, they start to get scared. They start to understand the risks. And the moment that the alderman, who's clearly friends with Gary Cooper, And who Gary Cooper thinks is going to stand up in favor of him and give a speech like, what are we even talking about? Of course, we're going to support Gary Cooper. He gives a speech that's the opposite of that. He starts off saying like, friends, there's a right thing to do. And here's what it is. And it's not saving Gary Cooper. It's like our town, you know, we've worked so hard to clean up this town, you know, and Gary Cooper basically cleaned up the town for them. You're welcome, everybody. But um, Gary Cooper cleaned up the town. But, but you know, will the North give us money if we have a murder here? No, they won't. We have to think about ourselves. So it's like everybody has very selfish reasons for not wanting to help. And it's like they can't see the bigger picture. They can't see what they're losing and not helping, um, how that's not honorable. And how maybe if the whole town stood up to these men, that would be the win. They, they just don't see that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's honor versus self-preservation, you know, like which one do you pick? And I think that's exactly that church scene is the point 
of the of the movie and is the point of the of the whole allegory you know of of a witch hunt about communism you know do you fault people for putting self-preservation before honor well because there were real consequences but then the idea of if nobody named names if everybody got up there and did the same thing would they have all faced the same consequences? Who knows? Like people had not let it get that far. We'll never know. I mean, I don't know what I would have done either. I would like to think I would have done the right thing, but I guess until you're in the situation, you don't know. If nobody's actually part of any type of group, then how do you organize everyone to not say anything? Because everyone's isolated. It's like, you know, Mm. police mentality where like everyone is getting personally isolated and told, you know, if you... If you name names, then you'll be off the hook. Right now, it's just you that's on the hook. You know, what do you do? It's a different thing if you're like going to like a an organized group every night and everyone's like, tonight, we're going to say nothing together, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's harder when everyone feels like they're isolated separately. That's a really good point. And you use the phrase on the hook, which is the, the movie on the waterfront is the opposite point of view, right? So it's Ilya Kazan being like, yeah, I named names. Here's my movie about it. <laughs> and the character, it was almost called the hook because Marlon Brando's character feels like he's on the hook when he has to like talk about the mob. Now that's, I mean, it's different. They set up the circumstances in their favor. So in that one, it made it like more honorable to quote unquote squeal. This is how I felt when I was on the hook. Whereas this is the right. opposite. This is how I felt when I was alone, when I was isolated and no one would have my back over something so ridiculous. Right. I mean, but- I can honestly see the town's perspective, you know, I can see where it's like, yeah. hey, man, this is not the town's problem, really. I mean, to some extent it is, but he's not coming here to kill us. He's coming here to kill you. I mean, I see it, but it's also so sad that it's he's like, I did that for you. Like, I cleaned up the town for you. Then, you know, with the expectation that the same thing that happened before. Oh, God, it's like the judge. It's what the judge said. In the beginning of the movie, we have a judge who immediately leaves town when he finds out Frank Miller's coming because this has happened to him before. You know, he's put people away for murdering other people thinking they'll be away forever and they're not. And he packs up as fast as he possibly can and gets out. Um, Ironically enough, it's played by Otto Kruger who, and this is not a spoiler because they tell you at the beginning of the movie. So I'm not spoiling this movie for you. He's the bad guy in Saboteur, um, which is all about like, oh no, Nazis have infiltrated America in World War II. You know, we got to stop him. He plays like the saboteur. Um, So I think it's interesting. He's playing like, you know, this judge role in this one where he's immediately like, nope, we got to get out. These people will not have your back. He's the most cynical. He he says exactly what's going to happen before it happens. And he's right. So his cynicism is like completely accurate about what to expect from the town. Um, He's like those people that helped you five years ago. Things have changed. They're not going to help you again. They, you know, they're not in a place where they're going to do that. Watch, trust me. Um, and he's right. So that's like a very, that's our foreshadowing moment that ends up being so sad once we get to the church scene. And that's the turning point of, oh, really no one that we we thought maybe at church, he would have people that backed him. Nope. It's going to be nobody. That's really cool storytelling that they set up that tension of like, will they, will someone help you? Because now we've been told that maybe they won't, you know, really, really well written. I also love that the one person that will help him halfway through, he comes back and he's like, I forgot about you. And we're like, oh, as viewers, we forgot about you too. We forgot (laughs) that there was one person. (laughs) 
My dad didn't, though. He was like, what about that guy? What about that one guy? And I can't fault him. I get it. It's scary. Like, oh, you and me? Just you and me? Against four expert gunmen outlaws? Honestly, what do you expect? I get the people being afraid because I would be afraid, too. But uh, something I didn't expect were the people that were like the shopkeeper where he's like, my business was better when Frank Miller was here. Like, yes, were people being shot and killed and was everything terrible? Yes, but I was making money. So it's weird to see like people that outwardly will say that because I think a lot of people think that way. Like the church guy was thinking that way. It's about money. But to have someone be so outwardly like vulturey and villainous and be like, yeah, I made money when this bad guy was in town. So I like him. I didn't expect that. I mean, I feel like people say that kind of stuff all the time with politicians that where they're like, I don't follow him on everything morally, but, you know, like I sure felt like my taxes weren't as bad or like, you know, whatever it is where they're where people are like choosing to pick and choose which thing they support a person for. And usually it's like when that person is helpful to them financially, that they're able to overlook all the moral ambiguities. Or they're not seeing the bigger picture of how things could be better on a wider scale, even for them, bigger picture wise. But they're like, no, in this little detailed picture, this is what I'm seeing. And this is what I'm doing. And you're like, oh, but if only if you could just work for the everybody's good well well it's interesting <laughs> that you say that because isn't that the argument for communism yeah right but like communism if- doesn't totally work either any system that's too like you need nuance in systems but yes you're no, correct no i totally agree i yeah. totally agree with you i'm not i'm not saying like this is why we should all be communists no i'm not yeah. saying that but, but i'm saying i'm saying like it's interesting that we're having this discussion after watching that scene in the movie because Uh, kind of what it seems like he's trying to say with that character is like look what happens when people don't look out for each other on a wider look what happens when people are only focused selfishly for capitalist gains you know that this this guy was only looking at his bank account was only looking at you know and he so he was like frank miller i'm for frank miller you know um and if you had more like you're saying if you had more of an overarching view of the whole of all of us as a community you know you would never think the frank millers of the world were acceptable and i think it's the risk too people are afraid to risk when they have something because i think it sounds like when they were fighting frank miller before they weren't sure of the outcome right like we don't know if this town will be quote-unquote settled uh, for like our women and our children, we're going to try this out and see what happens. But like once things were established and there was risk involved, what if we die? What if we lose something? Um, to me, that's when they weren't willing to to put up any stakes. Like once risk was involved, once they were going to potentially lose something, they were out. That makes sense because you're you're risking something that is tangible to you for what the idea that you're being honorable. I mean- which one is more valuable to you? The writing was so good. It's interesting because in the beginning, Grace Kelly, I was like, no, I get her perspective in terms of like, this is dumb. Like, this is dumb man conflict. Really? You're going to just shoot each other up? That's stupid. Let's get out of here. So I understood that perspective. But at the same time, I think once she might have realized things weren't that black and white, that there was nuance there, that's when you maybe, I don't know, have a conversation. (laughs) 
<laughs> stay at the hotel. Don't just hop on the noon train. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, ma- marriage is all about compromise. <laughs> Welcome to marriage. You knew he wasn't a Quaker when you married him. Yeah, exactly. It's not just you anymore, Grace. Plus, this is the old days and he's 50. How many years do you think you have with him? That's a really good point. I didn't think of it till right now. I don't know what she's doing with him. It's weird. She's Grace if Kelly. This was a weird. different film. Maybe her and Katie Harada could have like had something oh, together. Yeah, gone I off to a new town. I feel like that would be a much better film. Did you know that Grace Kelly and Gary Cooper during the making of this film had an affair? No, I did not know that. Tell me more. They were like hooking up. They were hooking up during this film. I did not know that. I know that he had an affair with Patricia Neal many years earlier. That's all I know. And the other piece of trivia that I saw while watching this movie was that they took Gary Cooper's like name for Archie, for Cary Grant's new name. They put like, they switched the letter C and the G because Cary Grant was supposed to be the new Gary Cooper. Gary Cooper went off to Europe um, because he's been like working really, really hard. And his doctor was like, you should go for a vacation. And he went to Europe and he just like stayed for a really long time. And then when he came back, they were like, hey, look, it's the new Gary Cooper. His name is Cary Grant. Because they couldn't, he couldn't be Archibald Leash. That is not a movie star name. He couldn't be that. Name. I didn't know that about him, Gary Cooper. We do, people at home, we talk about Gary Cooper on our Sergeant York episode of this podcast. And I feel like we talk about Grace Kelly on the Rear Window episode. So if you want to hear more about them, check out those episodes. Oh, one thing that we didn't talk about that's just not silly, but is interesting is that, <laughs> so I mentioned Dimitri Tiamkin wrote the music for this piece, which is really awesome. Um, it's really well done. But he also wrote the ballad High Noon which is also like called Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And it's basically a ballad that they play at the beginning of the film that like tells you the story of what's going to happen. And it's Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling on This Our Wedding Day. So we've got that. It talks about Frank Miller. It talks about worrying about being a coward. And it talks about at the end, it's like, I can't leave unless I shoot Frank Miller dead. So it's the first kind of cowboy ballad ever that like tells us exposition in a song that has to do with our story. And it's sung by this guy, Tex Ritter, in this film. And it becomes a hit on country radio. And it sparks a trend in future Westerns to do the same thing. So this was kind of the first movie that did that, that had like this Whoa. exposition country ballad. I mean, I could sort of picture a man with a guitar like and like a piece of hay coming out of his mouth, like on a step being like, now listen to the tale that I'm about to tell. Like, you know what I mean? That sounds like Robin Hood. That's like the rooster in Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's where I think where I'm getting it from. <laughs> but I feel like it's like, I could see that happening in this type of period of genre. And it's almost like they did that, but they were like, we're not actually going to have the guy. We're just going to have it as like background. The balladeer will not be present. Right. <laughs> you will just hear the song. But you'll get it. You'll get it. And it's cool. I think it's cool that we start with the villains too, because we're hearing, it's almost like a music video a little bit. We're hearing the music. Yeah. And we're seeing these three guys that we don't know who are not Gary Cooper. Right. Um, And one of them does have a black hat. So you're like, okay, so these guys might be up to something because one of them has a black cowboy hat. Uh, (laughs) Now I know that. And the townspeople are like cowering from them in fear. 
And the song does talk about like, will I be a coward? It's all, you know, blending together. So we we kind of get the sense of who they are um, just through those interactions and through the song and seeing them get to the train. Um, so yeah, we get, we get all that from them before we go to the wedding and meet Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly's characters and their fastest kiss of life. Their wedding kiss is like a very quick, like peck, ooh, we pecked, ah, it's the past, we kissed. Um, <laughs> then they have their sweet, like private kissing moments. So we're like, oh, but they really do love each other. They're passionate about oh, each yeah. other. I think it's interesting that the Frank Miller pardon, he's put away from murder and he's released and that's never explained. I find that so interesting. Because they're like, it doesn't matter why he was released. He just was. He's released. That's all you need to know. Somehow somebody pulled some strings. Well, he probably, I in my mind, it was like he's not released for a good reason. Like he's released because of politics. Like he's released because like somebody let him out of jail before they should have. Like he was pardoned by someone or something? Like there was a bribe or, you know, like it was, uh... it, it was, it was a. Corruption? Corruption. It seemed to me like we don't know why he got out because it was a corrupt situation. He shouldn't be getting out of jail. It seems like the previous marshal was very understanding of that. Like what's interesting is when he, when Gary Cooper goes to like his mentor, who was the previous marshal, who's Lon Chaney Jr. And he's like, I'm not going to help you because there's no point to me helping you. Like this is a shitty situation. People are terrible. I don't know. You don't see that in the beginning. Like in the beginning, these people are all around him with joy. And so to hear like the cynicism that comes out of like even his mentor. I know everybody's so cynical. But he was like, nothing matters. Basically, <laughs> wasn't that like what he said? Oh, yeah. No, it was a beautiful speech. And it was like, you know, you you risk your life and, you know, all for what? For a tin badge. Yeah, for a tin star. Because that was the name of the magazine story. Oh. Yep. yep. For a 10 star. And then it's it, the, I wrote, he says, um, it's all for nothing. Will it's all for nothing. You do it all for what? Nothing for a 10 star. You risk your skin to catch killers all for nothing. So yeah, that's true. But you're also like, but can't you just like stand with him? You know how to use a gun. Can you please just stand next to him? Oh, another quote I wrote down from the Reverend was there like, Hey, Reverend, what do you think about the situation? And the Reverend says, the commandments say thou shall not kill but we hire out men to do it for us. It sounds like he does support Gary Cooper, but he's like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, but I thought that was a, that was a good quote. I thought that he was like working out the hypocrisy and all of it. And I, I, the way I took it was that he was working it out. Not that he was like standing behind it, but that he was like, yeah, okay. I go back to the Bible. The Bible tells me I shouldn't kill, but obviously I need to kill in order to protect. So I pay other people. That seems kind of hypocritical. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, what you want me to do is to tell everybody to go out and kill. I'm not going to do it. And I, 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 I could follow that. I could get, yeah. I could understand all that. The writing was so good. It was so, so beautiful. So many speeches where I was like, that was really beautifully said. Something else, I don't know if I said this about the ballad. I do love that the whole ballad is do not forsake me, oh my darling. And at the end, she does not forsake him. And he does shoot Frank Miller dead and he does leave. So I do like that this song is like, it's like a prophecy that does come true in the end. Um, yeah. I like all that. And then another detail I liked, um, actually a couple of details. One I liked when he's leaving the church and no one will help him, he still says thanks to everybody. And I went, oh. <gasps> You just thanked them for not helping you. You're clearly, they're, they're trying to show like what a good man he is by that, I think. Um, mm. Cause I was like, oh shoot, I would not have said thank you. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, you probably would have. 
I'm from the Midwest. I'd have been like, thank you. Sorry. I'm sorry. Bye. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm bringing Frank Miller to town. Ooh. So there, there was that. And then obviously the kids that are like kind of callous, right? But they're playing a game outside the church. So they're like, send the kids out so we can talk about this. And the kids go out and they play like a game where they're like pulling each other apart. It's like, it's like oh, yeah. tug of war without a rope. It's like tug of war with their arms. Yeah. What was but that? I was like, oh, wow. That's symbolism. I don't know what that game is, but they were, they were pulling, they were pulling them, themselves apart. And then when the kids are playing the game where they're like, bang, bang, you're dead, Will Kane. You know, like that, like they're pretending to be the sheriff that dies, like the callousness there, but they're kids. Yeah. I don't know. All of those moments. I was like, that's, that's really well done. That's really cool that they put those things in. Agreed. That, that just uplifts the whole thing to art, doesn't it? It's those little things that where you're just like, whoa, that's beautiful. And then on just a germy note, it grossed me out that they used to apparently just have water outside that you dip your hands in publicly and like wash your face with, and then put your hands back down. That one of the bad guys did that. And I was like, ew, how many people have done that today? You're all going to get COVID. (laughs) (laughs) He was bothering me on a germ personal level because I know he didn't wash his hands after he went to the bathroom and I know no one else did there either. (laughs) And then they're all sticking their hands in that water and washing their faces with it. I don't think you want to be in this town in 18, whatever it was, because I'm sure that's like the small amount of water they had to go around. So I, I can't imagine what other type of germy things you would discover and upon living in a place like that so i'm sure that's the least of it at least they're washing something true um and i think it's interesting that the people are shot in the order of their clear importance like the guy that drinks the the villain that's the lush obviously has to die first because he's a lush oh yeah you're right yeah. oh my god and then the guy that's like a little bit vain he's second and then the, the one that was telling them what to do the whole time he's third because you know and he's killed by surprise by grace kelly how could he see it coming so there's all that And then finally, I love that um, Gary Cooper escapes. So to get Gary Cooper, the two bad guys that are left. So they're destroying the town, by the way. Like the town is nice. These bad guys just at the start, one of them punches a hole in a glass and pulls out a women's hat. And I was like, I don't understand why. Oh yeah, I didn't get that. I didn't get that. And he was like, for later, just in case. (laughs) Right? And I was like, what does that even mean? For later, are you gonna, oh, maybe it was for Grace Kelly? Maybe in his mind, he's like, if I kill Gary Cooper, I'll get Grace Kelly. I don't know. That's a stretch. I don't know. Cause it was the same guy that was checking out Grace Kelly earlier. So maybe he stole that. Maybe that is the only explanation. Guess your guess is as good as mine. I, I literally, I didn't know <laughs> what was going on. I was like, what does he mean for later with the, with that hat? Is he going to put that hat on <laughs> help with a fight? He's like, well, in my spare time, I like to dress and drag and I should be allowed to do that. And you're like, yes, you should. Sir. Yeah, yeah should. absolutely. Listen, uh, no judgment at all. I'm just, you do. You. I didn't, I didn't expect it, but all the more power to you. So anyway, they're causing destruction. They, Gary Cooper's hiding out in a barn. He shoots one of the men from the barn and they see that he's in there. So they start to burn the barn. And in getting out of the barn, you see all these horses and you're like, oh no, are the horses going to burn in the barn? Oh no. I know. Gary Cooper frees them because it's the right thing to do. But also in freeing them, he rides one of them out and that's how he escapes. So it's like, yes, doing the right thing is just like freeing the horses. It's going to help you escape. It it all went 
so well that moment was really happy for the horses and for his escape it just it was a good moment for all of us and letting these villains do whatever they want you know they, you guys were so worried about money they're destroying your property that's gonna cost you too buddies people at church that's why they wanted him to leave though they were like, can you please get killed outside of our land so nothing gets hurt? Thanks. Literally, they're like, thank you so much for saving our town, but can you go? Can you sacrifice yourself specifically so that we don't have any broken windows? Thank you. I don't want someone to punch a hole in this window and take up on it for no reason. I was thinking about how hard it would be to replace that glass in the historic times. And then what do you do? Like people can just come in and take your stuff in the meantime? They stick their little hand in there. Take more things. So, um, for the Oscars, it won for Best Actor. Gary Cooper won. Um, so it is good that he stood by uh, Carl Foreman because if he had not, he would not have won this Oscar. So just saying, he got his reward. Um, best Original Score went to Dimitri Tiomkin, which I think was deserved, as we mentioned. The suspension, the use of instruments was very good. Um, and Best Film Editing, which I also agree with. They yeah. literally utilize film editing to build suspense of a situation that would not otherwise be suspenseful. So yeah, Best Director Fred Zinneman was nominated um, and he did support Carl Foreman. Um, but Fred Zinneman also made the movie From Here to Eternity, which is a great movie. Carl Foreman was nominated um, for screenplay and Stanley Kramer was nominated for Best Picture as a producer. And Carl Foreman should have also been nominated as a producer for this piece because he was part of that production company and was ousted out um, during the making of this film. He um, could have also been ousted even for the screenplay. That's what's so crazy. He wrote the screenplay, came up with so many of these concepts, was involved in the production, and he could have been totally erased just because of like a paranoid body of government. I'm glad you're saying it now. It was a witch hunt. There was nothing there. It's crazy. We are moving on to the modern lens portion of this show. What does not or does hold up? For me, my does nots, something that doesn't hold up is like, yes, this film is self-aware about a lot of things, but it does not mention Native Americans at all and indigenous people and how they probably they probably kicked indigenous people off that land in order to, quote unquote, civilize it for people like murderer Frank Miller. So they don't talk about that. Um, and then this is a smaller thing. But when Katie Harada first um, is on screen or when she's giving a speech, they start playing like Spanish background music. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm noticing it. Like, okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those are probably like my main two. Also, obviously, there's not like a lot of people of color in this film. It's a pretty white, straight, cis film in the 50s. Yeah. Um, did you have any that were like glaringly like, this really doesn't hold up? No, because I I love that she she ends up being the hero in the end, which I think really holds up. And um, I love the powerful, strong women, one of which is a person of color. Yes. Well done. Well done, 1952. Well done. Give it to you. I think this is the first movie where I had way more modern lenses that held up than didn't. Because all of it was, the, it's the same thing. It's like a woman saves the hero of the film and saves the day. A person of color is a hero and is well-respected and has a sexual background and is not vilified for it. Like so many things where I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. The calling out of racism and her being like, yeah, this is one of the reasons that I'm leaving and it sucks. Um, and then Gary Cooper, like admitting to feeling scared out loud saying like, yeah, this scares me. Yeah, I've thought about leaving. I'm still not gonna do it. Like, I think just the ad admitting of fear um, cause that's really what bravery is. It's being scared and then doing it anyway, cause it's right. So 
and him being vulnerable with both Katie Harada and Grace Kelly. So I would say those are all pretty awesome uh, modern lens things that hold up. Completely agree. So we're going to move on to the double feature portion of this show. Um, I don't know Westerns very well. I know that's so surprising. <laughs> so On the Waterfront felt like the opposite of this kind of, because it's a Ooh. really well-made movie, but it's like the other perspective. So I feel like On the Waterfront would actually be cool to watch with this. Um, and then I was also trying to think of like women in Westerns. So Johnny Guitar is a Joan Crawford, like I'm a badass lady Western film. Um, and The Quick and the Dead, I've never seen it, but Sharon Stone and she's a gunslinger. So that's maybe... Um, yeah, my Westerns are really off the mark because I haven't seen a lot of them. So HUD I've seen because I like it because it's Paul Newman and that seems to combat toxic masculinity. So check out HUD. Um, Shane, it's like, you know, the lone guy trying to stand up to bullies. Stagecoach, just because it's a Western that I've seen that was entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we are now. Um, I wrote Sergeant York because it's Gary Cooper and it's about a pacifist who ends up like having to fight um and like doing what they have to do and okay you know they do fight for what's right but at the same time they feel bad about it because they're pacifist um i wrote the virginian also because it's gary cooper and it's western giant again texas western toxic masculinity dealt with and i wrote red river because it's another western but i haven't seen it but montgomery clift's in it and i like him okay Amazing. Amazing. I'm not equipped to give you proper Western. That's a pretty long list though. That's good. It's a long list. Yeah. It's not maybe an accurate list. Maybe there, there's probably a better double feature that I don't know about. Cause I don't really, I'm not like super into this genre. Do you have any that you're like, ah, watch this after this. I mean, it brings to mind, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Just the idea of, you know, a black and white where a man is um, kind of, coming in and being disillusioned about you know um people's goodness and standing up for goodness and and winning in the end and standing up to corruption yeah exactly corruption i also felt like this instead of gary cooper like this could have been jimmy stewart this could have been any of those guys maybe not john wayne i think he was offered the part and was like no i'm not gonna be in that commie movie because that's what john wayne would say yeah exactly Um, it wouldn't be right for him though you True. Know? He wouldn't pull it off. Plus, I'm sorry, but I don't see John Wayne with Grace Kelly. I just don't see it. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Um. So, Ashley, thank you so much for being here. It was so lovely. Thank to you have for you. having me. Loved it. Loved this movie. Thank you for having me watch it. I'm so glad I've seen it. And it, it's really a good one. Everybody go out and see it if you haven't seen this movie now that we've talked all about it. It's excellent. All right. We will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Ashley Blanchett. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>